So this morning, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read a scripture before we read Acts uh, 7, and then uh, we'll turn over there. So, so turn to Acts 7 with me. If you don't have a Bible in the back of the seats there, there's a Bible that you could follow along with me. And while you're turning there, I want you to read, um, I want to read this to you from the book of Matthew when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he explains this to them. Jesus said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Last week, when we began uh, Acts chapter 7, really, we looked at the life of Stephen. Stephen, if you remember, was one of the early deacons of the church. Uh, basically, he what, they weren't called deacons in Acts chapter 6, but their function was as administrators and table waiters, and they did practical things of ministry. Practical things of ministry are, are, are so important because those are just as spiritual as quote-unquote spiritual things of ministry. Now, let me explain that. Um, sometimes we think of spiritual work as Bible teaching, as prayer, as worship, which it is. But let me tell you something else that's spiritual. Um, it's cleaning up. Uh, something else that is spiritual is putting things on a calendar. Something else that's spiritual is what you do at your job Monday through Friday. Because when we read the Bible, we, we realize Whatever we do as unto the Lord, that becomes our worship unto God. So how do I treat my family? How, how do I, uh, if I'm in school, how do I treat my teacher? If you're a teacher, how do you treat your students? See, all of those things are very spiritual in nature. And we think sometimes of just this being the spiritual stuff, but all of it is spiritual. And so these early deacons had to be filled with the spirit of God. I, I talked about how we have to be filled with the Spirit of God in those practical things because sometimes we're, we're tested as I was when I was a busboy at a restaurant. And um, sometimes people will treat you in a certain way and you need to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. Now, these men that persecuted Stephen, they were religious, but they weren't really Spirit-filled. Uh, they were holding a form of religiosity. And that form, that template of religiosity says, uh, we're following all the right rules, we're doing all the right stuff, but the heart is really not regenerated. A regenerated heart is someone that has surrendered to God, has believed in Christ, and the Holy Spirit has now filled that person. So this morning, I wanna ask you, are you regenerated? Do you know whether or not you've been born again? Because if not, then today is the day that hopefully you could know that you'll be born again if you open up your heart by faith to receive Christ. These men weren't. They, they made these false accusations against Stephen. And as they brought these false accusations, Stephen has this opportunity to be a witness. And last week we looked at how it was really God's story and Stephen is just a part of it. And your story is really not your story. You're a part of God's story. I'm a part of God's story. There's a bigger picture. So we looked at Abraham's testimony. Remember that when Abraham was called, he was called in Mesopotamia before he ever entered into the promised land, before he ever knew God. And in the same way God called you, God called me, even before we knew God. God started to do these things in our lives that started to draw us to him, uh, caused us to be curious, made us wonder if there really is a God brought someone into our lives. And that's what God did in Abraham's life. He called him when he was in Mesopotamia. You remember that he stopped in a place called Haran. That's halfway between uh, where he was called from and the promised land. And sometimes God's promises are delayed. We want answers right away. You know, when, when God does a work, uh, sometimes he does a work and I expect it to be right now. And God's work is sometimes not in my own timing. Let me tell you, that could be a stumbling block for many of us. When God doesn't work in the timing in which we want him to work. Some of you are single and you're thinking, I just, I want to get married. I want to get married today. God, show me the person today. I want to find them right now. And in our lack of patience, we could easily miss what God is doing. 
Maybe you're looking for that job and it's that job that you're, you're waiting on. You're waiting and you're waiting, but it doesn't come in your timing. Or maybe it's just some trial that you're going through and you want that trial to be over. The next thing that happens is that he finally gets into this promised land. We looked at the patriarchs. Uh, remember that um, when Abraham had a, a son, um, it was at a time when his wife, uh, Sarai at the time, later changed, uh, God changed her name to Sarah. She couldn't have a child. She was beyond childbearing years. And maybe you feel like you're beyond the time when God could work in your life. And just know it's never too late. Maybe you think, well, how, what could God do at my age at this time in my life? Maybe I've missed that opportunity. Maybe I've missed God's calling. And it's never too late because God is always in that process. Then he had a son named Isaac. And if you remember that Isaac had a son named Jacob and uh, he wrestled with God and God changed his name to what? Israel. So if you know Old Testament history, then you know that Israel became this uh, father. Basically, Jacob had these 12 sons. So if you read the Old Testament, they're called the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's why each of those sons started a, a tribe. So when you read the Bible, you read about the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where they came from. So when Stephen giving his answer to this council, he's bringing them all the way through God's history. Now, why is he doing that? He's doing it because these men who are putting Stephen on trial are not trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in tradition. They're trusting in a place and they're trusting in a process. Let me explain it this way. We have this process of being right with God. It's called following the law. That's our process. We have this person that we trust. His name is Abraham. His name is Moses. These are the people that we trust in. And we have a trust in a place. It's Jerusalem, specifically the temple. That's what our trust is in. And what Stephen is going to do is he's going to take them through everything that they have their trust in He's going to wipe it out. And he's going to show those things are only secondary to point to the person of Christ. So this morning, if you would pick up with me in verse 20. In verse 20, it says, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, remember, um, these religious leaders in Israel, their trust was in Abraham as their father and as Moses as their deliverer. We have Moses. You know, we have uh, this, this man that God used in order to deliver the law to us. Remember that Moses, when he was saved um, out of this destruction because Pharaoh was wiping out all of the firstborn Hebrew sons, that God's mother, I mean, uh, Moses' mother put him in a little ark, a little basket filled with pitch, and God saved Moses, and Moses floated down the Nile. And uh, if you remember that, that Pharaoh's daughter saw him, and uh, it was Moses' sister that said, oh, I know the, the mother, and we could bring him back to the mother to be nursed. And, and, and so Moses is saved. We also see that Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh, and he was instructed. And notice what it says in verse 22. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, in the Bible, there are types, there are symbols, typologies. What is Egypt a type of? Anyone know? The world, okay? Egypt is a type of the world. And by world, I'm not talking about earth. I'm talking about the ways of the world, the cosmos. Moses was learned in the ways of the world, but you know what he retained? He retained his faith and he retained his belief and understanding of who God is. Is it wrong to go to a public school, a state college, a university? No, but let me tell you this that Moses retained his faith and he understood what it was that he believed. And I think it's really important in our world today because more and more we're a post-Christian nation. And as a post-Christian nation, there are professors like my daughter's uh, professor at USC who challenged her in her geology class and said, if any of you believe here in intelligent design, by the end of this class, you won't. Direct challenge. 
I mean, right there up in front. And, you know, it was just a neat thing that my daughter was able to go through that and retain what she believed and even kind of challenge some of those things in her her class. Um, Not in a defiant, rebellious, arrogant way, but in a way that in her her research papers and her writing, she would say some things and and give the opposite side. And, And you know what? The teacher's assistant was actually the one who graded her paper. You know you struck a nerve when the teacher's assistant wrote a one and a half page response to her paper. All of her friends, you know, what did you get? I got a B, I got a C, and just a grade and a couple of comments written back to her was a page and a half response to her her uh, writing. So it, it kind of struck a chord. And one of the things that I see about Moses is that even though he was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians, um, he still retained his faith and understood who God was. And it also says that he was mighty in words and deeds. And I think that this is interesting because do you remember when God calls him at the burning bush? Do you remember what, it, what he said? What did Moses say? I can't speak. He had uh, this speech impediment. Early on in his life, he was super confident. Early on in his life, I could, do, I could deliver God's people. I, I could do this. And he takes things into his own hands. He's mighty in words and deeds. Later on in his life, he became humbled. Read with me in verse 23. So when Moses was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Again, at this time, mighty in words and deeds at age 40. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. He tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, your your brothers, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Moses thought he got away with murder. He thought no one saw it. Um, he, He looked around. He didn't look up. I think the same thing is true for us. When we compromise and when we sin, we could look around. You know, we could look to our left, our right, front, behind, But I'll tell you what the enemy tries to do to get us to sin. He tries not to, you know, I I can't ever remember a time in my life as a believer, as a follower of Christ, where I've shook my fist at God and I've said, God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to sin and I'm going to rebel against you. But let me tell you what the enemy tries to get us to do. He tries to just make us not conscious of God. So that in that moment, we're very forgetful of who God is in our lives and what God has done. And so Moses thinks he's gotten away with it, but he hasn't. So Moses fled to the land of Midian. Now think about this uh, process. The process of Moses being uh, the one that is the deliverer. In his mind, he thinks he knows how God will use him to rescue the Israelites. God could use my power, God could use my knowledge, God could use my background, God could use my strength. And let me tell you that sometimes when we trust in the process more than trusting in God, we could make an idolatry out of the process. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is putting something in the place of God. We think we're too sophisticated to have idols today. We don't have uh, little idols that we bow down to maybe, or, or you know, we don't carve images and, and bow down to those idols. But let me tell you that if I'm trusting in the process more than trusting in God himself, then at times that can become idolatry. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, when, when I left Calvary Chapel Gilroy, when we were moving over here, there were some things that God had put in my heart specifically to do both there and here, Um, a process, if you would, a way that God was going to work that I I thought he would work. What ended up happening is that God restricted me as far as time is concerned in in many different ways. Um, I find that there's more to do here right now and less time to do it. And it gets very frustrating for me because I, I know things that I need to do and people that I need to meet with and, and things that need to be done even when it comes to outreach. 
but because my 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 day is truncated in a way that um, it wasn't in Gilroy because Deanna was at home um, full time, it's changed things. So my frustration level would rise because I would say, I need to meet with this person. I need to do this thing. And I'm not able to get to that. I'm not able to go out and spend some time with these people or even personally just getting involved more with things in the community because of, of time. It's built some frustration. But let me tell you what's happened. What's happened is that God has used other people to do some of those very things that I wanted to do that I felt like it was in my heart to do. And so I found myself challenged that I was, in a sense, making an idolatry of the process that God would use me to do some of these certain things. And God is using some other people to do those very things. Let me give you one example. When I I left Gilroy, one of the things that I had prayed about at the time was um, there was a great need for a college ministry. There was a a great need for that 20-something age group. Um, By the way, if you don't know this statistic, the least likely demographic for a person to be at church on a Sunday morning is 20-something young men. So if you're a 20-something young man, praise God. You know, you're a miracle. It's awesome that you're here. And, and God wants to use you. But let me tell you that in the process, just as I was moving over, uh, right before this transition took place, before I even knew about it, we had uh, about... 18, 20 college students over in our house and, and we met and we prayed through some things. It was just super exciting. Like God was doing this new work and it was shortly after that that God called me over here. And so that kind of stopped. And when that stopped, what is happening right now is that those same students and more of them are meeting in the house that we used to live in because Justin, who's the pastor there now, lives in our old house. And those people are still meeting and even more of them are meeting So guess what? God did the work that he wanted to do. He just didn't use me in the way that I thought he was going to use me. Moses thought God's going to deliver his people and he's going to use me in a certain way. And God said, no, you're you're mighty in word indeed. And Moses kind of trusted in himself. And by the time the story picks back up, when God says, now I can use you, Moses is saying something very interesting. He's saying, you can't use me. And when Moses is saying, you can't use me, that's the time that God says, no, I can use you. Now, the bigger challenge at that point in Moses' life is to have faith when God says, I'm going to use you, to know that it's not you, it's God. See, sometimes we have our confidence in what we could do. I have my degree. I have this money. I have this ability. I have this talent. And as long as our trust is in that process and in that thing, Sometimes God puts us on the shelf. Then when we are humbled and we come to the place of saying, God, I can't do it, then God says, now I can use you. And the bigger challenge now is believing that God can use you. So this is what happens in Moses' life. Now in verse 35 through 43, or actually 30 through 34, uh, 40 years past, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. He drew near to observe the voice of the Lord um, and the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off of your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. Notice this process that God uses, 40 years. I call it, um, Moses had a, an advanced degree. It was a, a BSD. And it stands for backside of the desert. Um, if you think you're in a dead-end job, I, I want you to know that in Moses' culture at this time, shepherds were considered the bottom rung of the totem pole. That was like the entry-level a job that no one wanted. And if you're a shepherd, you were kind of smelly from being with the animals and and, uh, you probably couldn't do anything else. And so you became a a shepherd. That's what Moses did. How long did he do that job? He did it for 40 years. Who was his boss? It was his father-in-law. This is a dead end job. He's not moving anywhere. There's nothing happening. What was it about that 40th year that Moses had been through the desert every single time 
Every day, his job, same thing. Wake up, crack a dawn, bring them out to pasture, feed them. There was something different on this day that Moses turned aside to see this bush. The bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And I think that God was teaching Moses, even in his calling, a picture of ministry. Moses' ministry didn't work in his own strength, did it? No. Think about this. Have you ever seen a bush burning and not consumed? No. Because what is the fuel of a fire? If a bush is on fire, what is fueling the fire? What is giving that fire something to burn? It's the bush, right? And the bush is consumed because the bush is the fuel for that fire. In this case, the fire keeps burning, but the bush isn't consumed because God is the resource of that energy and fuel for that fire. And in the same way, in ministry and in life, when I'm trusting in my own strength and I'm just saying, God, I just got to will it. I just got to gut it. I just got to make it happen. I just got to work hard enough. I just got to strive burnout can't do it when it comes to the place of saying god i can't do it i need your fuel i need your strength i need your motivation because i don't even feel like doing it then you know what the bush can continue to burn but i'm not consumed see god is showing moses in his very calling the resource of the strength it's going to come from god himself now in verse 35 you're going to see not an idolatry of process but an idolatry of a person Remember, Stephen is giving this answer to this council that says, we have Moses. We're trusting in Moses. He is our leader. In verse 35, and notice when I read this, how many times that Stephen points out this Moses? Duh, they know who Moses is, right? He puts this definite article in front of Moses to say this Moses. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, 40 more years in the wilderness. Notice verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Who's the prophet like Moses? It's Jesus. Moses isn't the deliverer. Moses is simply pointing to the deliverer. And every hero of the Bible and every person that you read about, we studied the book of Judges on Wednesday nights in Life Church. It was such a great lesson that the judge was not the ultimate deliverer. The judge was only pointing to the ultimate deliverer, which is God. Moses was not the ultimate deliverer. He was simply pointing to the ultimate deliverer, this Jesus that would come. In verse 38, this is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol and they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your uh, your God Repham Images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now, it's interesting that these men that are putting Stephen on trial, they're trusting in their forefathers. And what Stephen is saying is that our forefathers, instead of accepting Moses, the deliverer that God had chosen, they rejected him. And what he's really doing is he's pointing out that you in the same way are rejecting the deliverer that was given to you. Because sometimes we fight against the process of how we're delivered. Sometimes we fight against the person um, that is the deliverer. Um, As a lifeguard in in college, it was a, a, a fun job that I had. I only had to use this lifeguard skill in this way this one time. Um, They told us in our lifeguarding classes, 
when you go out to save someone, sometimes that person will be in a state of panic. And that person will see you and they will look at your head and in their mind, they will think buoy. And they will wrap themselves around your head and they will not let go. And in some cases, lifeguards have drowned because the person is holding on to them too tightly. So what you do is you approach them and you tell them what you're going to do. Hey, I'm going to come in. I'm, I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to come in from behind you. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to drag you in. And if the person won't listen, what you do is you push them away. You wait till the person is too tired. And when that person is too tired, then you could come in and you can come behind them and you could save them. Well, I only had to use that process one time. And it was not when I was a lifeguard. It was like... 15 years later after I was a lifeguard, out of shape, not swimming. Uh, I was with a bunch of friends, actually the youth group from Calvary Chapel Gilroy, and we were in Lake Tahoe. And uh, we um, hiked up to this mountain lake, not Tahoe itself, but there was another lake that's up there, and there's a little island in the middle of the lake. And we all said, hey, let's go ahead and let's swim out to the island in, in the middle of the lake. So we start to swim out, and what we realize is that the water that we are swimming in is just fresh melted runoff it is so it's just melted snow freezing cold and as soon as you 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 start taking that breath because you're getting hypothermia the moment you you set foot in the water and we start swimming so i'm thinking in my mind as long as i swim as fast as i can i'll get my body heat up my temperature up what i also didn't realize is that that was our first day there we weren't acclimated to the altitude so it's thinner air you're swimming as fast as you can so we're swimming out there and as we're swimming, uh, one of my friends that was there, one of the youth leaders, he looks over at me. He's like, hey, Matt. And I'm swimming. I'm like, yeah. And I don't want to slow down because I know if I slow down, you know, my body, he, you know, I'll start getting cold. He's like, oh, this is kind of hard, huh? Yeah, this is, this is pretty, par- pretty hard. And, and all of a sudden, he goes, hey, Matt. And I stop and I look. He's a little bit farther behind. He's like, hey, I can't breathe so well. I'm like, all right, take it easy. Just keep going. I keep swimming. Finally, he goes, hey, Matt. I don't, I don't think I can make it. We're about halfway at, at this point in time between, you know, the island and between the shore. So I look over at him and uh, I realize, okay, he's having a hard time. And so he's being calm. So I'm thinking he's calm. And I swim over to him. Hey, are you okay? He latches onto my head and he grabs me and we start to go down. And as he starts to grow down, I'm trying to push him off. I'm like, hey, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. And he's like, I'm like, just relax. Just float on your back, and, and I got you. So I'm trying to tell him to float on his back. And, and all of a sudden, he starts floating on his back, and he, he grabs onto me again. He starts, like, pulling me down again. Now, I'm, I'm out of breath. I, I can't breathe. I'm tired. My legs start to cramp up, and I'm realizing, okay, now we're kind of both going down. So I kind of push him away again. And uh, I, I'm telling him, look. I'm not going to go near you if you grab me again. <laughs> Don't grab me. And so I'm trying to use one arm. I'm trying to float on my back. While I'm trying to float him on his back and trying to hold him. And so uh, he doesn't want to be saved by anyone else because, you know, as a youth leader, it, it's a little bit embarrassing, right? You don't want, like, high school students to save you when you're, when you're struggling as a youth leader. So I'm, I'm there in the middle, and I, I yell out because I'm out of breath, and I yell over to the island where the other guys are there a little bit ahead of me. And I'm like, hey, and I called a couple of them. Um, I knew that in high school, they were, they were swimmers. So they both swim out and they grab, they grab my friend, you know, one on each arm and they start swimming him over to shore. And, and I could tell like he was really bummed out. You know, he, he didn't want that to happen. The reason why I share that with you, aren't there times when God says, here, I'm gonna show you a person that's gonna help you. And we say, I could do it on my own. I don't, I don't need help. Someone comes along and says, hey, you know, can I pray for you? No, I'm good. You know, I don't, I don't need prayer. Um, we, we like to help other people. We like to give other people scriptures. We like to give other people money when other people need money. We like to come over to another person's house to help them move or to fix a fence or to fix a car or to do something for them when they need help. But I'll tell you, when, it's, when we need help, I don't want anyone to help me. I don't want anyone to know that I'm struggling. I don't want anyone to know that I'm going through a sin issue. I don't want anyone to know that I'm struggling in my faith. Don't want anyone to know that I'm, I'm losing it. Don't want anyone to know that I'm depressed. Don't want anyone to know that I have some doubts. Don't want anyone to know that this personal struggle is so deep 
that when people see me and they ask how I'm doing, I say, oh, good. And they don't know what's really going on in my heart. And let me tell you that sometimes we can make an idolatry out of the way that we want to be saved and the person that we want to save us. Because sometimes God will use someone else to help us that may be younger than us, maybe less experienced than us. Maybe at work, they're not as smart as us. Maybe they have a lower rank than us. And we think, no, there's only a, a specific way that I want to be delivered and a specific person that I want to be delivered from or, or by. See, sometimes you might come to a pastor or you might come to someone else that's older than you in the faith and you might ask for counsel from them, but sometimes the person that's going to help you is the person that you don't want to ask help from. It might be your wife, might be your husband, might be one of your kids. They made an idolatry not only out of the process, but they also made an idolatry of the person of, of Moses. And what, what Stephen is showing them is that Moses is only pointing to Christ. See, in our world today, people are very religious and very spiritual. But when it comes to trusting in Jesus, they don't want to do that. I'll, I'll trust in my spirituality. I'll trust in obeying these commandments. I'll trust in, in being a good person. I'll trust in karma. I'll trust in the force. I'll trust in a way, but don't tell me to put all of my trust in the deliverer, Jesus. And in our world today, that is our biggest challenge. And you know what Stephen does? Instead of backing away from that, he offers them the only way to be saved. It's through Jesus. And Stephen knows, because this is the same council that crucified Jesus. If I give them this answer, this could end in my death. And I want you to notice that Stephen doesn't back away from it. And he keeps pressing. He gives them this, um, he even shows them it's not the place. Notice in verse 44, he, be, he begins with the personal pronoun, our. He shows them that he's one of them. I'm not above you. I'm not better than you. He says, our fathers, I come from the same background as you. Our fathers, they had the tabernacle of, will, uh, of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. So notice he says, God showed Moses a pattern, make this tabernacle, this tent. And then after that, it was Joshua. Joshua came in. And after Joshua, it was David, all of the patriarchs, all of the ones that they trusted in. And after David, it was Solomon. And Solomon built this house for God. But notice in verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Earlier this morning, I just encourage you to come out at nine o'clock. We have a, a time of prayer, intercessory prayer before uh, the 10 o'clock worship time. So just encourage you, if you can make it out at nine o'clock, it's really a, a great time to pray. And one of the things that was prayed today is, is someone prayed, we live in a beautiful area, and how many times have you heard this? My church is the Redwoods. You know, my church is the beach. My church, you know, that's my, my place. God is not reduced to a building. He's not reduced to this place. But we're never to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. So when we gather together, there's something special. Uh, why do you go to a concert instead of listening to Hi, you know, you can have Beats by Dre, the best headphones in the world, the best system, digital music. Why do you go to a concert? There's other people that are there. There's something about being with those other people. Better angles watching a game on TV, isn't it? Replays, comfort of your own home, your own snacks. And yet, why do people go to games? There's something special about being with people that are rooting for the same team. When we come together to worship God, we're reminded that we're not alone. We look across at the other people that are here and we realize we worship the same God. It, it causes us to realize that, that it's more than about us. But their trust was in a place. They said, we have the temple. Why do we need this Jesus? We have the temple. And, and Stephen goes on to show, 
God doesn't live in a place. They made an idol out of a place. Now, we don't necessarily have a temple like that, but we could make an idol of a place. We could say um, this building, you know, this is a, a place, you know, God has to be here. This is, we got, if, if the Lord moves us, then the Lord moves us. Super important to always have that. Uh, when, when I was pastoring the church in Gilroy, as the Lord would have it, it just seemed like every three years we moved. Uh, we would outgrow a place or the lease would change or the relationship with the landlord would change. And every time it was a test of faith for me and a test of faith for the other pastors and a test of faith for the people. And what I saw every time is that when I look to the, the you know, even Moses, just like the Old Testament, like they're talking about, when they set up the tabernacle, do you realize when you read in Exodus, there were sometimes, if you study Exodus, they set up this elaborate tabernacle, incredible work. I mean, a lot of, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of work. And sometimes the cloud would move after only being there for three days. Now, wouldn't you be frustrated if you were one of the priests in, you know, following Aaron in the ministry and, and you just set the place up and the cloud moved. And that means that it's time to move because that represented God's glory and where God was going. Um, at one place, when I was teaching through Exodus, I realized that one place they went through was an oasis, beautiful trees, great water source. They were there for just less than a week and then the cloud moved. And the next place they went to, it says that the waters were bitter and it was dry and there was no water source. And the people started to complain against Moses and they started to get angry. Why did God lead us out to this place? And the thing that Moses prays for when he prays for them and he prays to God, he says, God, send us wherever you want, only go with us. You know what? I hope that that's our prayer. I hope that's your prayer. I hope you don't make an idol of your own comfort and security of where you live because God might move you. I hope you don't make an idol of your own comfort and security of a, a certain place that this is where God must leave me because God, God might lead you somewhere else. He might take you into areas unknown. And so they made this idol of the place. And again, what Stephen is doing is, whether it's the idolatry of process or person or place, he's chopping the legs off of those arguments. And he finally ends with this personal plea. This personal plea that he gives. In verse 51, before we read this, I, I want to bring in a, an illustration before the read. Usually we'll read it and then the illustration, but I want to give you this illustration because I think it's important. Stephen knows that this could be his last shot to share with them. Uh, he also knows that he comes from the same background as them. You know, he's, he's a Gentile and they're Jews, but, but he's, a con, you know, he's a convert, uh, he's a, a Jewish man that really comes from a Gentile background. He's one of the Hellenists. And, and Stephen is pleading with them, I believe, because he loves them. And if you love someone, you have to be willing to tell them the truth, even if truth hurts. Now, Jesus is described as being filled. He was full of grace and truth. Not grace or truth. It's not an either or. Either we show people grace or we show them truth. It's both and. We show them grace and we also show them truth. And sometimes in doing so, the response of people that we are well-meaningly reaching out to won't be the way that we would want it to be at first. So when Stephen reaches out to them, I don't want you to read into this anger because when you read the end of Stephen's plea, you know that it's not anger. The motivation for Stephen, I believe, is love. And so read with me what it says in verse 51. He says, you now. He went from our, our father, you know, our, our background, you know, our, our fathers had this tabernacle, um, our God. And then in verse 51, he makes it personal. And he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Remember, they were of the circumcision. They were the ones that followed the law. He says, you. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. See, what happens is um, Stephen is getting very personal. We live in a generic 
non-offensive, we don't want to offend anyone kind of world. Now, we should never offend anyone needlessly. But I believe that there are times that we could compromise the truth because we're afraid of someone being offended. There are times that we won't walk through the door that the Lord opens and provides for us because we're afraid of how someone might respond. Stephen says this in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And Stephen here at the end of his life is filled with the Holy Spirit to be a witness. The word witness in the Greek is from where we get the word martyr. Stephen is the first martyr that dies for the testimony of Christ. And in verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were cut to the heart. This morning, if you're cut to the heart, how do you respond? How do I respond when I'm cut to the heart? God loves me enough to cut me to the heart. God loves me enough that there are times that he gets right into the issues that I, be, I might be most defensive about, I might be the most insecure about, and those are the very areas that the Holy Spirit wants to deal with me in. And I have two opportunities to respond when I'm cut to the heart. I could either humble myself, and when that happens, there's a softening of my heart. Or I could get angry and reject what the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, And what happens is my heart becomes harder. As they are cut to the heart, their response is that they gnashed at him with their teeth. In verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Anytime other than this, we see Jesus seated on the throne here at this point to receive Stephen into heaven, we see Jesus standing. I think it it points out that God really cares about people that are martyred, about testimonies that are faithful to him, about people that are, are willing to risk their lives even to bring people to a place of understanding who Jesus is. It says in verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, And they stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. Can you imagine what this looks like? They start yelling at him, ah, shut up. And they they stop their ears. How childish is that? Blah, 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 I can't hear you. Let's kill him. And they run at him. They stop their ears. They start yelling. They ran at him with one accord. In verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. This is a mob mentality now. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want you to remember that name because he's going to be the driving character in the rest of the book of Acts. They laid the the clothing at at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where else did we hear someone say, receive my spirit? Remember Jesus on the cross. Stephen is following in the footsteps of his Lord. And then notice verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Do you remember Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he breathed his last. And then Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he he made, (coughs) excuse me, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, let me end with this, some applications for us this morning. Number one, be open to God's process. 
the way that God is working in your life may not be the way that you want him to work. And that's hard. That's a very hard thing to accept. Um, we want the testimony that says, I got the girl, I got the job, I won the game, God used me, all glory to God, right? Sometimes the testimony is, I got dumped, I got fired, and uh, I didn't get the job, and I don't have any money, and it's all bad, and yet God is good. Sometimes I don't want that process. Actually, always, I don't want that process. But God uses that process. And don't fight against God in the middle of some of the processes that are difficult. Secondly, follow God's leader, but look to Jesus. They put idolatry in the man of Moses. They put idolatry in Moses. And so they were only looking to Moses, but they weren't looking beyond Moses to God. Remember, Paul said this. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And Timothy and Silas and those that followed Paul, they needed to look beyond Paul. They needed to look to Jesus. Because guess what? If they were around Paul long enough, like Barnabas was, there's gonna be some friction and some tension, some difficulty. And if our eyes are on a person, then we will be stumbled when that person lets us down. Every person that we followed is a human being that is faulty by nature. And so we need to follow God's chosen leaders in our lives, but we need to look beyond them to Christ. And we need to make sure that we don't try to put God in his place. God is in the temple. That's where he belongs. God is in the temple. He's in that place. But out here, I'm different. God is in the church. I act a certain way around my church friends. But God isn't at my workplace. He's not in my neighborhood. He's not at my school because I left God in his place. And so when I'm around these people, I'm this way. When I'm around God's people, I'm another way. You know, there's an absolute freedom in realizing that you could be the same person in every group. Then you don't have to remember the lies and you don't have to remember the image and you don't have to be afraid of these friends meeting these friends because then they'll say, you know a different person than I know. Don't try to put God in his place. And realize this, that God is in your workplace. He's in your neighborhood. He's in your family relationships. He's in your friendships. He's in your entertainment. He's in your schools. Don't try to put God in his place. The bottom line is this. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be a witness. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit to be a witness. How do we be a witness? The words and the deeds they match. Not all the time, because we fall short, right? We get back up. But let me tell you this, the word and the deeds, the man and the message, the person and the message, they match. So that when you have the opportunity to witness and to speak to someone about Jesus, they say, I understand why you're such a hard worker now. I understand why you're so forgiving when other people talk about you. I understand why you have joy, even though you're fighting this sickness. I understand why you have this trust in God, even though you're going through a a hard time at work. It makes sense now because your words help to make sense of what I have seen. And sometimes when they hear those things from you, when they see it reinforced by how you live your life, that witness becomes very powerful. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses this morning, I hope and I pray that you are filled with a sense of mission. If you're not filled with a sense of mission, Christianity is very boring for you. It's very religious. It's very going through the motion, very head knowledge based. But when you're reaching out to a world that's lost and you see that you're on mission, it gets very exciting and very scary. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So my prayer for us this morning is that we don't miss what God is doing in our very midst today. Amen. We have the worship team come up. Let's pray and let's respond to the message. How do we respond? We respond in worship. How do we respond? That during this time of singing, that our hearts would be open to God's work. Don't resist. If you've been cut to the heart this morning, humble yourself. Open up and say, Lord, I see areas of my life where there's pride. I see areas of my life where I haven't surrendered. I see ways that I'm not willing to surrender to your process. And if you have never received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then this morning I implore you, be saved. The same way that 
Stephen preached this message to them because he loved them and because he wanted them to know Christ, it's the reason why we're here today. It's because we love you. We want you to know Christ also. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you. You have sent the Savior. You have sent your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we know that at times, Lord, we could be resistant to him. Lord, like a lifeguard that is coming to rescue us, there are times that we fight against that rescue. God, I know that in my own life, there are some times that I have to get too worn out, too tired to fight. When I finally just surrender and say, Jesus, just do what you want to do. Let your will be done. But Father, I pray that it wouldn't have to come to that. I pray that it wouldn't have to go all the way to those lengths and that, Lord, quickly we would surrender to you and to your process. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has never opened up their hearts to say, Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you save me? That today would be the day of salvation. And if that is you, that you would pray this prayer along with me by faith. Jesus, please save me. Please help me. I realize I can't do it without you. I've sinned and I've fallen short. And I pray for your forgiveness. I pray that you would rescue me, that you would lead me, and that I would be able to experience that life that you have promised. I now receive you into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then for those of us that have prayed that already, being regenerated by God's Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would fill us again. Lord, uh, we so many times ask for that filling and then in a sense, Lord, not, not out of a, a lack of being regenerated by your spirit, but Lord, the world just kind of beats us up and sometimes, Lord, we, we go our own way. God, we need to be filled afresh so that we could be your witnesses this week. Even today, Lord, we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's just go ahead and continue to worship the Lord and, and uh, respond in your heart to the Lord to what God is doing and what he's spoken to you this morning.